Food is not just about food. Food is connected to so many things in our lives, like culture, traditions, where we live geographically, how much money we earn, biodiversity, and a big problem like climate change. I do try to tell folks on a regular basis that if we look at food just through a climate lens, I guarantee we're going to screw something else up in the process. If you're an agriculture producer, food is probably the reason you get up in the morning, that you come home late at night, and it's the thing that gives you a sense of pride. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking about native plants and their connection to Blackfoot culture. Hey guys, it's been a while. I'm really sorry it took me this long to produce another podcast episode, independent of the whole COVID-19 crisis finally hitting Alberta last month. It's just been really hectic for Rural Roots uh, this winter, really, and you know, but like hectic in a good way. We played a really small role in the launching of that new national coalition, Farmers for Climate Solutions. Super stoked to be a part of it. Would love to see a few more prairie groups involved in this because right now we're the only one. Last February, we're also right in the thick of designing a brand new initiative for Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. It's it's called, and I'm not a big fan of the name, even though I came up with the name, it's called Climate Farmers Lab or The Climate Farmers Lab. And it's a social innovation lab for agriculture producers in Alberta to sit down at a table together to tackle this big question. How might we mobilize agricultural climate solutions in Alberta in a way that it creates diversification, sustainability, and resilience in rural communities. Now, no word of a lie, I think this lab is going to be the future of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, or at least it's going to be a guiding light for Rural Roots to Climate Solutions going into the future. So fingers crossed that we get funding for this one here. And then, you know, there was the Young Agrarians Winter Mixer up in Grand Prairie, which was just a blast. And then just before COVID-19 really hit us here in Alberta, there was the Energy Futures Lab Communities Accelerator in Drayton Valley, which just gave me so many great ideas for our solar lab initiative. So that was February. And now, because of COVID-19, our world's been turned a little upside down. Now, this isn't the episode I want to talk about COVID-19. Don't get me wrong, I want to talk about it, but it doesn't feel like a good fit for this one here. I do hope people are doing okay, all things considered, and folks are staying healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. I've been sitting on this episode since November. Last November, I drove down to Blood Tribe or Kainai First Nation to have a chat about native plants. 
my hopes and dreams with the episode, and maybe it was a little pie in the sky, is we could just really do a deep dive into those native plants, get a really good knowledge and understanding out there for how they work, what their yields are like, what their nutritional values are like, you know, in the hopes that this could be something that inspires people to incorporate into their own growing practices or incorporate them into our agricultural systems out here in the prairies. It didn't quite work out that way. And after re-listening to the interview I did with William Singer III and Lori Brave Rock of the Kainai Ecosystems Protection Association, I kind of understand why. They're asking for some curriculum, you know, mm. you know. So, like, I do a lot of curriculum development, but not at uh, university or college level. Like, that's why we need, uh, we've asked, and, and we're really grateful that Amethyst First Rider will be helping in uh, Leroy because they're a big part of this, this, um, actually, this is it here. So how, how of what, what I came up with in developing, uh, this curriculum is, is it's not, it's not like a textbook. Mm. You're not going to open a textbook and start giving you steps. So basically what this is, is a story. Okay. So, yeah. So I, I talked with An, uh, Amethyst trying to figure out how we, just, how to start this. So we're starting it with a Nappy story. Nice. And then everything, uh, what Napi does at the end of that story kind of sets the t- the tone for the rest of the. So this whole document is actually a story. And they did tell me a story, a great one. Don't get me wrong. I still learned about native plants. I learned about wild turnips or Indian breadroot, uh, wild peppermint. I learned about nodding onion. But I also got a real cultural lesson in the process. Cultural lesson number one is how do you start an interview? How do you ask somebody to share their knowledge if they come from Nitsatapi or Blackfoot culture? What you want and you offer the tobacco. Okay. So, my guess would be like, okay, my name is Derek. Yeah. Uh, would like for you guys to share your knowledge around, yeah. I guess, like healing yeah. native plants. Yeah. And just explain what you're doing it for. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. and you know, a lot of times it just kind of reinforces that sometimes, because a lot of times we're not on the same page, we're, we're busy. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but aside from that, that's about it. And uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you said offer the tobacco with the left hand, was it? Yeah. Okay. Another interesting lesson I got that day is that the Nitsitapi people or the Blackfoot people, they don't really have a word for thank you. Like they have a word, it's not used very often. I, I tried to say it that day when I was in Kainai and everybody had a good laugh about my pronunciation. But thank you, at least my understanding of how gratitude or thanking is expressed, it's you take your hand and you put it towards your chest, you put it on your heart. I believe you do it with your right hand. I could totally be wrong. Unfortunately, it was so long ago now, I've forgotten. But when I think of it, if you're handing over the tobacco with your left hand, I, I'm assuming then you're putting your right hand to your heart. But like I said, I could be totally wrong about it. Now let's jump into the interview with William and Lori. First thing about the interview, the audio quality might not be as solid as the other 29 podcast episodes we've done with Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. You see, the problem is because of COVID-19, I can't really go to a recording studio anymore. So I'm, I'm literally in my bedroom right now 
talking into a pillow to make sure my voice doesn't bounce all over the walls and using my handheld recorder uh, to record this episode. So hopefully it doesn't affect the uh, listening experience too much. I do apologize if it does. Second thing in this episode, you're going to hear them talk about something called KIPA quite a bit. Now, KIPA stands for Kainai Ecosystems Protection Association. Kainai in the Blackfoot language, as I understand it, stands for many chiefs. KIPA's mission is to provide leadership through ecological consciousness and environmental stewardship. Uh, they do things like monitoring, resource management, and conservation awareness. At the same time, they promote protection and sustainable development and partnerships. KIPA holds a really awesome environmental summit each year. And last year, the Rural Roots team was really lucky. We got to go to the summit. And that's, uh, well, that's where I met William. And that led to this podcast episode. So uh, big thanks to the KIPA team for that. Lori's going to introduce herself in a moment, and you'll notice she says she's a member of Kainai and Amaskapi Pakani. The Nitsatapi are four nations. So Kainai is based around Standoff. Uh, standoff is where was the day we recorded this episode. Uh, standoff is just south of Fort McLeod. Then there's Siksika, which is close to Calgary. Pikani, which is between Pincher Creek and Fort McLeod, and Amskapi Pikani, uh, they're based in Montana. Siksika, Kainai, and Pikani signed Treaty 7 in 1877 with the Government of Canada, as did Tutina and the Stony Nakoda. Uh, so my name is Samaki, longtime woman. I was born here in, like, on the Wallam well, Reserve, but it was in Cardston. I grew up here on the Kainai Nation, but I'm also an enrolled member in the Emskapi Begunny Tribe, which is the Blackfeet Nation in Montana. I've grown up in both places. I've lived uh, in Montana. I've lived in Canada. I've uh, gone to school in both places. Um, but this has always been home. Uh, I grew up here on the Kainai Nation in a community called um, Bullhorn Cooley. Um, and so uh, from there I grew up. And then after my grandparents separated, um, we were um, kind of forced out of our family home and we were in a really, really small house. And so uh, due to overcrowding um, myself and my older sister, we were the two oldest of the kids. Uh, we were sent to residential school. Uh, the last residential school here um, on the reserve was uh, St. Mary's uh, Residential School. And at that time, it was just a residential portion. So uh, we attended school in Cardston. Um, but we lived at the residential building. We were there from, I think, like 83 till it closed in 87. Uh, so we were there kind of off and on throughout those years, just depending on our living situation. But throughout all of that time, uh, I've always had a really strong connection with uh, my family, with the uh, um, lands, with our culture. And so that's kind of what has really... Um, you know, because I know a lot of people have gone through this experience. Uh, my my mom was in residential school. My grandfather was in residential school, and it is it is um, 
very, very much impacted my family um, as far as, uh, you know, all of the negative effects that can happen as far as residential school. Um, but again, I think that our culture um, and all of the things that we do together um, as a family, as a community have really, really uh, sustained me as far as, um, you know, not um, going to drugs or alcohol or something else. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to have had uh, my culture in my life because that has really um, carried me through up to where I'm at today and which has kind of led us on that path of um, our environment because a lot of our culture is tied directly to the land. And so that has kind of been one of our um, one of my main focus as far as, um, you know, what's happening as far as climate change, invasive species, and just all the different things with resource development, um, all the impacts that that kind of brings along with it. And even just, um, you know, having new homes and new areas, even this new building where we're at. So, but that's just a little bit about myself. And uh, right now I'm working at the Kine Wellness Center and we deal with, um, we're kind of one of the hubs for the uh, opioid crisis that we're having that we're experiencing here on the blood reserve since I think the first, uh, it became a crisis, um, back in 2014 is when they, um, made the announcement. And so we've been working with, um, our, we have a detox center here at the health department. We have our own doctors, we have a clinic here. Um, so here at wellness, we're kind of dealing more with the counseling, mental health, uh, addictions, uh, treatment. Uh, and so we work a lot with our elders and our clients that are coming in are fairly much affected by, um, you know, addictions or um, just even uh, any of the mental health impacts from all of the things that we've gone through as far as colonization. Um, I think that's about, and and I'm just, and and we also um, are members, committee members with the uh, Kainai Ecosystem Protection Association. And um, yeah, we just try to stay involved wherever we can. Um, whenever something like this interests us, we'll, we'll step up. So... That's Running Coyote and Blackfoot. My English name is William Singer III. And just to carry on from what Lori was talking about, a lot of our work is based a lot of a lot of on that what do you call it? That tech traditional ecological knowledge aspect of it, and a lot of it is rooted in Blackfoot science. So, anyway, so the the work that we're doing, what kind of led us here was uh, um, every summer we go harvesting. We harvest uh, berries, wild mint, and so you know over over time, like until today, our harvests have gotten bigger and bigger. And uh, one of the things that really got this work going was uh, were like Laurie said, we're both members of Keepa. Uh, Lori was actually started, she started attending the meetings and she started, uh, she got a job. So I started, I took over. Uh, so we, we're still both in a group, but she attends when she can. Like this job is, you know, it's pretty demanding. And there's a lot of times too, like I can't make the, the meetings as well. One of the things that we, we saw at that time was sort of the decline of some of these areas. We used to go to a lot of different areas all along down through, um, Bullhorn Coulee. And that's where we live. And, Throughout those times, around about 2006, we started to notice some of these areas. And every year after year, they began to decline. So we started talking to elders, um, people, even 
council members about what's going on. So it wasn't until when I when we took part in Kipa when I started making an effort, you know, we started making an effort to let the tribe know this is what's happening. So it took a few years until about two years ago where the, the tribe, you know, they started getting uh, realizing for this work we you know, had to be done. So with Kipa, we focused our work on um, to, uh, on area of uh, actually we were actually we're going to be doing restoration from the start. We we're going to move a a piece of um, uh, let's say a sweetgrass patch to another place. Mm-hmm. Well, while we were doing that, uh, the, the following season, the area we're going to use was taken over by leafy spurge. I'm just going to have to jump in here quickly because leafy spurge comes up a lot in the interview. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this. I'd never even heard of leafy spurge until I went down to Kainai. But, you know, I haven't been doing this farming thing very long either. Leafy spurge is an invasive species that was probably brought by European settlers about 200 years ago. The plant can be about a meter tall, its roots can go almost 9 meters down, and they can spread out about 4.5 meters. When I was reading about it, it really reminded me of quack grass, just because it can sprout shoots from its root system. It has a greenish-yellow flower and light gray to black seeds. So what's the big deal with leafy spurge? Well, aside from the fact it's pushing native sweetgrass out, when the plant is injured, so when it's broken, it releases like this milky sap, that can irritate your skin and this can also be poisonous for livestock. The exception here is though sheep and goats can actually graze it. They don't seem to be affected by the toxin. And if anybody's wondering, it took every ounce of my being to hold myself back from explaining that bit right there about leafy spurge and not referring to it as the scourge of the seven prairies in a really bad pirate accent. We had to figure out what we had to do. So not only we did we already cut back on some of the cultivation that we mentioned earlier around the lake where a lot of those work is going to be taking place, mm. we needed to have a focus. So we one of the things that we came up with was a seed bank and growing them in a greenhouse. So this past uh, year, uh, I believe in April, I began teaching at the kind of high school. And they asked me to teach and talk about um, Blackfoot horticulture. Mm. It, it doesn't Blackfoot horticulture doesn't really exist on, uh, like now it does with mm. agriculture, but in the old days it never did. Mm. The only thing we uh, cultivated was tobacco. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing is pretty well. It's all new, new to us. So last year we started actually a few years ago we started growing some of these plants in our house. So we were successful with wild onions, mint, and sweetgrass. So we know we can we can grow these plants. Mm. But some other plants we're not very successful with. So which is so we started doing that work in the greenhouse this year. Okay. So a lot of students are actually learning these plants, the seeds, uh, everything. So we're basically just developing our curriculum as we move along. Mm. So at first we were going to sort of Follow the three sisters garden type, and then uh, then I, when I you know 
realize that we planted tobacco. So we'll be using that same method. And that doesn't really disturb the ground. And it's a really simple process. You just poke a hole with a stick and drop your seed. Remember so, doing that. Yeah, 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 so that's we'll be doing that type of... Uh, so a lot of the stuff, there's just a, a lot of things that are happening. And just kind of looking at uh, one of the questions you had where you're talking about the traditional Blackfoot diet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, William had mentioned in our presentation that um, prior to, um, you know, with, with our... Um, what would you call that creation story? Mm. Uh, we were, the majority of our diet was plants before um, buffalo came along. And so that's still, even today, uh, a large um, part of our diet was really a lot of the plants. And so this is kind of um, the interest now with Saint, where they're coming, um, what, what their aspect is, is the culinary um department there they're looking at uh because uh we like my sister uh went through the culinary program at the lethbridge college here and i know a few um actually his brother as well and his son and my oh two of my sisters i should say have gone through the culinary program so there's a direct relation with culturally uh one of the things that we we always do is feed people um and that's one thing like you can never ever you'd never ever turn away um food like if you go to somebody's house and you just ate and then they're now going to give you food you still have to sit there and eat because culturally like we don't you don't ever turn such a thing away and so we're always feeding our people so if we have any kind of event we just had an event last week where we did the prevention of family violence conference and we had it was catered it was like and everybody was like we're we're feeding them like i mean every couple hours we're feeding them again and again that's a a really strong part of our culture so for me i never really got that connection but i i know it's there because so many of our even within our family like food is like really really like so where we've got um you know some of our immediate family family members who are actually, um, you know, within the culinary field. So when these guys, uh, when Sate kind of approached us and they started talking about this, we were like, you know, there is a direct relation to, um, because one of the things they brought up was, well, we talk about, uh, as far as culinary, they talk about, um, um, was it, Per, um, Paris, like the, um, All the French cuisine, yeah, yeah. um, Italian cuisine. And they, you know, and he, and the, um, Andrew from Sate was saying, well, we go through, we talk about the whole area. We talk about the land. We talk about, you know, their culture and, and how these foods are, are related and, and, and then how they bring that into their, their dishes that they're making and creating at Sate. And, the one of the um, students that had gone through the Lethbridge Culinary Program was with us during that visit, and and again, and that that could be probably true for every um, every education course taught is that nowhere does it ever talk about where you're standing, and that was one of the biggest things because they've talked about like they were saying, well, we talk about French cuisine, Italian cuisine, but we weren't even talking mm-hmm. about the cuisine of the people that actually lived here on the lands that we are actually occupying today, and so they're as part of reconciliation, they're wanting to have this as a part of the first year um, 
um, for the first year students for the culinary program at um, SATE is that they would get this uh, background knowledge on the land where they're actually located, which is our traditional um, Blackfoot territory. So they've basically invited us to start working with them to develop that curriculum for their first year students. So we've been working with uh, Leroy, Little Bear and Amethyst uh, First Rider, and they're both educators at the UofL. And so we're like, well, we have, you know, this kind of background, but we need, so we know that we do need more partnerships. So we're always open to working with new individuals. Like if there's something like, because by far we are not experts, like we can be experts in our own plants, in our own areas um but there's still like we're to me this is always a learning process how i very first began was getting involved with the old man watershed council because my background is in administration and so i was like i don't know how to get all this knowledge about plants and the lands and waters and all of what's going on as far as resource development like how do i do that when i'm when i'm an admin assistant i can't go back to school because i'm not going to get the funding for anything unless it's for administration. And so the only way I could do that was to get on the old man watershed, um, their um, board of directors, because that's what I know is administration. So once I got on the board, then I started learning all of the, like they have, they produce so many, um, educational materials about all of the stuff that I was looking for as far as headwaters, as far as uh, riparian areas, working with um, ranchers, working with resource development. And the biggest part is education about all of these different things. So that's where I kind of got involved. And that's where I feel like, you know, there's always a way to find this information if you're really, really wanting to, you know, know more. There's there's ways to do that. And whether it means volunteering, um, because I was a volunteer board member, with Old Man Watershed Council, but I feel like that um, knowledge has really given me this, you know, um, you know, knowing, understanding, like what's going forward as far as the restoration plan, how difficult some of these invasive species are to deal with, and some of the steps that we can take as far as preventing um, the spread of some of these invasive species. So that was really a big thing for me as far as uh Old Man Watershed Council and that the information I got from there. So all of this information is kind of, and that's what I was saying, like that's kind of our background. So we want to invite more of our family in as far as this, uh, what we're doing with SATE to um, really kind of give them some, because uh, now we're looking at, uh, and one of the other things that he's been, um, William has been doing more, and I, I'd be in there more with him now, um, but he works with my mom and they do traditional meals and they'll actually do like a whole traditional meal and do a kind of a background because um, one of the main things as far as our uh, culture and our culinary foods today is like fry bread or bannock. And those are kind of the staples that you hear of, but those are actually um, food that was brought by through colonization. So we kind of do a little bit of background about some of the foods that are a part of our diet today and kind of looking at uh, what our diet was before. Um, the majority of our diet 
um, prior to colonization was um, foods were dried. You know, if we were preparing them, they were mainly boiled and, you know, and, and stored that way. But the, the neat thing I like about how we used to keep our foods is that they were done without preservatives. They were done without, um, you know, any of that kind of stuff being involved. So the process is that we're like, we still use that today. Like we still make our dry meat the same way we, you know, would still make it back then. And so we don't even, I don't even, I've never in my life heard of an expiration date for dry meat or for dry berries or for, you know, cause I don't know what that would be. Like there, these are some, some of the things that, um, we've never had to really worry about as far as our, um, as our, our food, as far as storing it and preparing it and keeping it. So, that's kind of a lot of um, what we've been dealing as far as sate. So we're kind of getting more into that um, with the edibles, but there's also the medicinal aspects. A lot of our plants can function as both um, being medicinal and being edible, being able to use for topical solutions. Like there, there's um, many different uses for many of our plants. And so the edible side is one of it. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing as far as the edible side is with um, sate. Um, so we're, we're really excited about, being involved in that and seeing that come to fruition um what else was there that we yeah the the thing with with um with southern alberta institute of technology mm-hmm. when they first asked um this is what they wanted to, you know to do i really had to think about uh, how to approach it because this is something they're asking for some curriculum there is different parts of it, so it's it's separated into two two segments. Mm-hmm. in In the old in the old times, the Blackfoot only ate two meals in morning and evening. They had lunch, you know, and like they'll nibble on things, but the main they only ate twice. Okay, so that's what it's broke up into. The first half is like your old old way, old foods, and that's what they want because they they also want to grow these plants you know, on, on campus. Okay. So this is another thing that we're, our seed bank is also going to be a, a big part of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where, where can you get seeds like this? Y- you know, that's the thing, you know, and, and we, we tried it years ago. We tried to get these, you know, wild grass seeds and we weren't really successful. A lot of the people that we asked, they'll say they're weeds. Why, why do you want weeds? Right. And that's the thing with our plants. Uh, modern ag- agriculture sees all of our, these plants out here as weeds. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our people, when we do the plant walks, they're like, well, we didn't know that we we're walking there. And again, like when he mm-hmm. talked about how a lot of our plants have been forced into ditches and, you know, so when you're driving through a ditch, you don't think that those plants are anything but weeds, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of the, when people, when we start showing them, no, these are not, we, these are our plants, mm-hmm. you, you know, when we start familiarizing them, they're just, it, they're blown away that the whole time it was right outside their door, that, yeah. they, that these things were there, that they were actually driving by in their ditches and that, that these plants were there. Mm. So, you know, that, that kind of um, really kind of changing that perspective as well, because, you know, looking at that, like I, like it, that surprised me. I remember, I think I was at one of my meetings with the old man watershed council and I came home and I was, I was just, I could stop thinking about it. I was like, I came home and I, I told William when I got home, I said, I never knew all my life, I've never knew that sage was a weed. I never knew it was classified as a weed. Mm-hmm. How is that even possible? Like I would, you know, like they told me, that's kind of crazy to think that all these years we've been picking sage, we 
movement, picking a weed. And that, you know, I told him it sounds crazy, but then again, like I was like, well, who cares what they classify them as? Like with, with our plants, like what they do for us, like we don't see them like, like that's why it blew me away mm-hmm. that that was classified as a weed. And it's something that's so important to us and it has so many uses. And, and, you know, when you don't have it, you're like, I need it, you know, and, and that's the thing. I'm just like, that blew me away. So when I came home and I was like that, I never, and so now I'm sa- seeing how many more of our plants are actually classified as weeds. I'm like, who cares? with those classifications are we have our own you know and as far as like when we're talking about our plants and when we describe them and have a picture of them we don't even classify them as a weed or uh or a plant we just talk about what the plant is what it you know because they've always been here too and that's the thing and i think that's one of the other things is that people have been around them all their lives and they don't really even think about what what that plant is and i know i've been that way for a long time and so the more we're just discovering new plants. I'm like, the other one, big one for us was the licorice um, root. And when we found out what that was, we were like, holy cow, how many times these things have been caught on my clothes, on my jacket, on my, and, and now when, and our dog, and he brings them in and we're just annoyed by these, um, you know, things that look like burdocks. And so you take, pull them off and they're, you're annoyed by them. But all of this time, those were the seeds for the licorice root. And so that's another one that was like, holy cow, all this time it was right there. It was right by us all this time. And we just never really recognized it. And so it's, it's building our own familiarity with these things. And so that's why for me, like, this is always going to be a learning process. I think there's always going to be room for us to learn more about our plants and learning new things about them. And that's, that's what I I think is keeps our um, interest in here for sure. Um, But it's been, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a learning process. And yeah, I'll just uh, finish off uh, with say, uh, anyway, the second half of that curriculum is the modern part so that will start off with when we like with contact treaties uh residential school or our our diet changed so our diet we we sort of resorted to a root vegetable type of diet Mm -hmm. so in the early 18 late late 1800s early 1900s a lot of our people didn't have access to meat Mm -hmm. so the rations were becoming very few so a lot of our people were forced to uh grow root vegetables tomato um, potatoes uh, turnips, rutabagas, those types of vegetables. So those are the types of vegetables they eat. So a lot of times their diet would be just bannock and turnips. Oh, so you can see how our diets really were really impacted. Mm. So and with with um, with flour, when we got flour, we 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 adapt. We made it. We 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 made it our own. So it's called. Well, the Europeans originally called it bannock. So we just adopted that term. Okay. But in in Blackfoot, we call it nupayin. Napayin, bannock. So when we started using bannock, it was just basic flour and water. So now today you have a whole bunch of additives, eggs. So when you go back to uh, culinary, you know, colleges, the foods they use are really heavy, fat, creams, sugars. They're really not good for, well, like, you know, anyone. Mm -hmm. Aside from eating it once in a while. But, you know, basically that's how our people eat. So a lot of our people eat really cheap priced foods, canned foods. And that's something that we're trying to uh, get our people away from. And it's some, it's it's a big job. So one of the things with SAIT, uh, 
we've got I've, I've got some people that we're going to be talking about uh, actually some students some of their experiences we've got some people who've actually uh, are online doing cooking classes using traditional plants so we have a, a lot of people working on on this so the second part will be it, it'll be interesting because the ending of this story will just start right back to the beginning okay and that's what we're doing okay. we're, we're teaching our people what, we're, what we have which we should have still know from thousands of years ago until today, a lot of that stuff is forgotten. And that's what we call required knowledge. Mm-hmm. So all of the knowledge of these plants, that's required knowledge. And it's all forgotten. Like Lori was saying, like some of the stuff we forgot, like some of the plants that a, a guy kind of forgot about them until you know, uh, recently mm-hmm. because we use them. You know, we use them. They're our medicine. So all of the plants that we come into contact with, we use them. So we don't really use Western medicine too much. And that's something we also want to get our people interested in that because it doesn't take much, you know, to learn about your culture, but it's to practice it is another thing. One of the things, too, with um, when we, we uh, listen to uh, Darnell uh, Rides at the Door, she's from Amscopi Begunny, um, the Blackfeet Nation. She did a presentation and she discussed, um, now I'm getting mixed up. I can't remember if it was her or oh, Rosalind Lapier, who did the, um, she did a presentation on bone broth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember Darnell also mm-hmm. talked about how um, this was a part of our everyday um, diet and the, the, the presentation on the bone broth was really interesting to me because there's a lot of things that I look at today and I'm like, how did we do this back then? Like, you know, how was this done before uh, colonization, before what we know and understand today? Like, how would we do this? And so that was one of the things that, um, you know, looking at like, well, what did we do? Like, cause we, we didn't have dairy as a part of our diet and a lot of, uh, Indigenous people have this problem. And I think the older we we got, um, we started having this problem as well. Um, because when you look at uh, Indigenous people, like we have not changed. And, and a lot of um, when some of the, the presentations that I've heard is that in in this hundred years or whatever that, you know, through colonization, like Indigenous people have not changed. And so throughout that process, we, because colonization came and they had dairy and all of that, it's something that we've really, really never been able to process as far as people. Mm-hmm. It's never been a part mm-hmm. of our diet. It was foreign to us. And so even up to about maybe eight years ago, we just cut dairy out of our diet completely because we were starting to really, really struggle. And I, and I had been trying to put more dairy into our diet because we were having like, well, uh, William has arthritis now. And, and just looking at getting older, you know, our doctors and health, they recommend that you, you know, have more dairy, you know, strengthen your bones, you know, and so I was worrying about all of that. And then that question came like, how did we do this before, mm-hmm. you know, before we had dairy. And so this presentation where they talked about bone broth, it really, really opened my eyes because a lot of the preparation, when you talk about our food, we're boiling, we're boiling, we're boiling, um, you know, the majority of our prep- preparation, because most of the foods are dried is that you boil it. Or if you're using any of the internal organs to, to cook with it, they're, they're tougher, they're not like muscle organs. So they're very different texture. And so 
So you do have to boil them a lot more. But what I didn't realize through all of that is that that was the majority of where we got our calcium was through our meals because the bone broth, you you boil everything out of the bone and then what's left is the broth. And then they would take the broth and they would actually drink that. And so... Darnell kind of explained that this is what they would drink in the morning. So, you know, today we get up and the first thing you got to have is a cup of coffee or that caffeine to give you that boost and give you that energy to start your day. She said back then everybody would start with a cup of bone broth and they would drink this every day. But I was saying, and, but even our meals, we're boiling. If you're boiling meat, it most likely has the bone in there. And so that's what I was saying. So all of this time we've been getting that calcium because because we've been boiling the meat and the bones and everything in there. And then you can even take that bone broth and just add it to your meals uh, throughout once you have it made. And so that was the biggest source of calcium for us was from uh, this bone broth. And so that was another really interesting part as far as our diet and, and how we didn't deal with dairy. So we're starting to try to incorporate more of the bone broth and more of that kind of um, cooking now what we've always had like, and that's one of the things like, I was raised with this kind of uh, traditional, my mom and my grandmother were very, um, my grandmother doesn't, I remember laughing one time I told her, I said, I call her mom too, but I told her one day, I told her mom, I told her, you don't think I've ever seen you eat like spaghetti or, <laughs> or like lasagna or like, I told her, you know, like, like people eat these like on a regular basis in other homes, but in our home, it's always like, you know, flank and potatoes, or it's, you know, boiled tongue, or it's, you know, I, it, we're still eating like this today, because of my grandmother and my mom. And so we we still eat like this a lot, which is why um, we're kind of being uh, a resource now as far as providing these traditional meals, because we've always had it in our lives, where some families, it was just a special occasion, they would do this. But for us, it was like every day, every week, every, you know, we didn't go out and buy like um, hamburger helper, or, you know, um, Kate, you know, um, Katie in a box or anything like every growing up, everything was made in the kitchen by our moms. And so that's what we've kind of still do today. Like we don't um, eat out a lot. We don't mm. eat a lot of processed foods. You know, we're still making our meals, you know, um, the way we were brought up and the way we were raised with that. So that was a really interesting part as far as, um, you know, our diet and, and that, but just kind of looking at um, one of the things like we're when when we're talking about our plants and our seeds and the potential for the greenhouses that because he's uh, William's been working with the um, so the high school and the kind of high school and they're looking at uh, repurposing or are kind of reinvigorating their old greenhouse that they've had out there. One of the things that we've really would really like to see, um, we've done community gardens um, and we have our challenges. Like one of the things when we do, when we talk about these presentations, we're talking about our plants, we're talking about all of this. And, and the first thing I want to say is, oh, I'd love to show you pictures of our garden and all the things that we're growing 
But one of the biggest challenges that we still have here on the reserve is uh, water and access to every reserve still has this problem. Today, we're um, having access to clean, potable water. Um, right now, we have a cistern and uh, we have to get water delivered to us. And so water is a very valuable commodity here on the reserve. Um, I would love to say that we have the water to have a garden, but right now we just don't. Um, I'm working full time. One of my major goals, um, we, we, we finally have, um, I'm partway there. We have two four by four trucks, but it's taken me a lot just to be able to afford, um, you know, a four by four vehicle, let alone two. The next major purchase would have to be a, a trailer to put a water tank on. And then each one of these things is like over a thousand dollars, right? So, um, a trailer and a water tank to put on there and then the four by four truck. And then maybe we'll be set to, maybe we can have a garden if we can get, uh, a, an alternate water source, but that's the kind of challenge it would take for now someone like my mom who, um, you know, um, she's, just receives a pension now. And my, my brother that stays with her is on welfare with his family. And so when I look at their, their, um, situation. They're in the same boat as us. They live out on the reserve. They don't have a four by four. They'll never have a trailer. They'll never have a water tank. And this is true for so many families. And so if we were able to accomplish this, we would be the only ones in our families to have a four by four truck, a trailer and a water tank. So nobody in my family has this right now. My mom, my grandma, my, and, and us, we all have our water delivered to us, um, through, and we all have a cistern. So none of us have water. We could just turn on like in Lethbridge or Calgary or off reserve. We don't, we don't have that luxury here on the reserve. So this is true for so many families and it would, and being the largest reserve in all of Canada here, um, it takes over an hour to go from one end of this reserve to another. So community members live in very rural areas and like us. And so these areas, it would be, it would make so much more sense if they had a garden, if they had a garden, if they had a garden to just go out their door and get the, you know, what they need right there, as opposed to having to hitchhike either to now stand off because we have a, um, we have a grocery store here or to one of the other communities, Lethbridge or Carson. So that's why you see so many of our, community members hitchhiking on the road it's not because they need you know um they're you know wanted to get out of the house for the day it's most likely that they're out there trying to get uh food for their family you know and you know so these are some of the biggest challenges uh transportation is always an issue here on the reserve whenever you deal with anyone any kind of um service even like we're always like we try to have a central source here in standoff but i mean that's not very um it's not very helpful to somebody who lives in Fish Creek that's about, you know, 10 minutes away from Waterton, you know, so how easy is it for them to access those services here? So there's so many challenges. There's so many things. And really, if we could find a way to have uh, one of the things that I learned through the Old Land Watershed was um, 
about xeriscaping and about putting in our native plants in in our areas, uh, in our yards and in our, you know, the areas around our homes so that you're dealing with um, having to water less, having to weed less, um, not having to deal with chemical spraying for any of the plants because our plants being native to this area, we're in a semi-arid um, environment here in southern Alberta. We grow cactus on the north end of the reserve. Um, so we're in a very, very dry climate. So for us to be trying to have green grass and green lawns with a I mean, grass, the grass that we have here is obviously not a native plant. And so you're constantly watering it and watering it. And then you have to weed it. And then you have to use chemicals on it. Then you have to put fertilizer on it. You know, all of that requirement. And if you put in a native plant, you would have to do any of that. And so looking at some of that, we're trying to get a lot of this kind of education across that we can have our native plants there. And if we could start using the seeds and start figuring out that process of how to put these plants in and then have to do a lot less maintenance uh, and then still have them producing um, whether it's edible or whether it's medicinal but you know so those are the kind of the things that we would like to see overall like as far as the seed bank because when we first heard about xeriscaping the first thing I said was well where do we get the seeds who has the seeds like where are these native seeds at you know how do we know which plants you know like we could go out and start collecting seeds but we didn't know which plants and so um old man watershed created a book with the 50 best plants to use and so we've uh, i know and i know that there were a few homes in lethbridge that had actually done the xeriscaping in their yards and so they do these tours just kind of show people what they look like and you know so that's kind of the thing that we would really really like to move towards you know overall is having more community gardens but to even have community members growing their own gardens and being able to give them the the resources that they need to be able to do that but still water is going to be one of the biggest issues and that's one of the things where we're still kind of stumped but in the meantime we'll we'll start working on everything else and try to get that set up and hopefully um i know they've been doing more um piping the water um i know some of the, the houses up here in standoff now have um water that's being piped from the canal and so we're hoping for more alternatives like that. But I mean, those are still going to be years down the road. So we, we, we got our work cut out for us as far as, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to get some of these things dealt with. But those are just some of the challenges that we're still looking at here today. One of the things that, that um, I had to really <clears throat> work with was our elders a couple of years ago like, when, uh, when the realization came to that we'd have to grow some of our plants, all our plants in greenhouses, it's inevitable because mm. we're not going to hang on to our green spaces unless we protect them somehow. But uh, so um, when I, anyways, working with the high school, one of the things that, uh, the funny, well, the funny thing about that was about forty years ago I was working in there. I was a well, when I was a residential school student, the, they built that greenhouse. Okay, and we grew like our regular plants and well, the hybrid vegetables. So now, forty years later, it's growing our traditional plants. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I had to really talk to the elders about was that and. One of the questions they had was, uh, like, are they going to be strong? You know, are they going to be the same? 
And it took about a year to convince, you know, some elders. And one of the elders that was really instrumental with a lot of the work we're doing, and a lot of the work I've been doing in the past is the late Carola Cafro. Okay. Anyway, so she's like really knowledgeable, and uh, she recent she passed away this summer. Yeah. I've been meeting with her prior, you know, past few years, talking to her about this, and she was wondering about, you know, about that process. I told her, well, it, you know, like these plants, they grow out there, they grow out there a while, but now this time, you know, we we have a chance to, we'll be growing them. So not only like they're they were put there, they're growing there well, but we're doing that. So a lot of our well, our heart is going into that plant. Mm. So that's the that's the only change is that we're just handling them. We're just giving them a, a, a different a, a home. Mm. And so yeah, it, you know, so she uh, she realized that there was no other way. You know, we we can try different plots of land, but in order to get things going before we lose completely a lot of our plants. We have to get things started. So that's why we, we can't waste time. Like, we can't waste the season. Mm-hmm. And that's what I immediately realized. We can't wait. Because once you wait, you, you there's a chance we're going to lose something. Mm-hmm. So this year, um, we we lost a sweet our sweetgrass patch. Mm-hmm. So I was able to salvage a bucket of uh, some shoots of them, of the sweetgrass. And... Um, so what the other thing I did is there's a lot of other areas we go to and I've been monitoring them this past summer and they've they've dwindled. So I went back out to collect seeds and I wasn't very I wasn't successful. So all I was I was able to do was collect about ten seeds. Ten sweetgrass seeds, like on this reserve. And um, so we also went out to take a, a, do a count on the number of uh, moths or Indian turnip or Indian breadroot. And we uh, estimate about 25. There's probably more. But the ones I came across, there's about 25 of them. And I harvested five of those. Okay. So basically, when you were roughly, there's only 25 turnips we counted last year. Oh. Where there should be more. Is on the reserve, uh, the north end of the reserve. When you go toward, um, towards the south, there's a, a huge hill, and they, they call that Moss East Dumi. That means uh, wild turnip hill, Moss East Dumi. Anyways, all the term, turnips used to grow all along the hill, down along to the river. Like, so it's cultivated now. Okay. So, and those are one of the things that we're trying to, we want to be able to keep growing because the, the value and the nutrition of these plants is it far exceeds what we're eating today okay there's more nutrition in uh, uh indian breadroot than any potato carrot tomato because a lot of the nutrition that you get out of the hybrid foods are you're basically looking at the look of it mm-hmm. they're made to look like that to look pleasing mm-hmm. so in a lot of the taste and a lot of the nutrition is gone out of it so you're mostly just eating water but these plants can do a lot for you. They work with your, uh, they don't, like the, the plants they call nightshades today. Mm-hmm. We Like I, I try not to eat them, but I have you know, a tough time. But with the traditional plants, these indigenous plants, I don't, I've never felt like that. So I've eaten them and I've never felt like the inflammation. And they them. taste better. Yeah. Like the strawberries, like the, they're very, very tiny, like the wild strawberries. Mm-hmm. But oh my gosh, like if you go buy a, a package of strawberries from the store, you'll get maybe one or two that are like the ideal mm. 
taste of a strawberry. They're sweet. They have the flavor. And then you've got about 20 more strawberries that are bland, that are just mostly water. But when you go pick wild strawberries, every single one of them that you pick are the ideal tasting, ultimate, the best tasting strawberry you can have. And they're so small. And they're so small, but they're like, they're like the flavor from, you know, like our, um, like those, the berries, like all of that, they're just so much more than what you get like anywhere else. Like we've even gone picking um, some of the you pick places for um, Saskatoon's and they're different. Like I was telling him, like, Mm. they don't taste like our berries. And Mm. then they talk about the different strains. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, like what strain is our, you know, wild berries, but then you taste ours and you taste those ones. And there's a very, very, very drastic difference in the taste. Like Mm. our, our native plants, they're very, very um, tasty. They're, they're very ideal. And you know, if it's a turnip, it's going to taste like the best turnip Mm. you've ever had. So Mm. that's kind of how I, I, I've looked at it. Um, One of the things like when he was talking about the sweetgrass patch, it's kind of how we got started because when the leafy spurge, like, like I, I almost, I wish he'd never showed me what leafy spurge was. Cause I, I, I used to ignore like some of these things. Like I, you know, I don't want to know about it. I don't want, you know, I want to just, you know, but when he started telling me what it was and then I started seeing it and I was like, Oh my gosh, like from the day he's told me like to today, this problem of leafy spurge has exploded, not just on reserve, but off reserve. I see this plant everywhere. I see it in Lethbridge. I see it in Cardston. I see it like everywhere. And I, and that's where I was like, I wish she'd never showed me this plant because now I know how bad this problem is. So in our area, when we started seeing the, the uh, leafy spurge choking out our sage, our sweetgrass, like we really tried, but just two people in over 200 acres is not going to make much of a difference. And so we started talking about it. We start, you know, and from all of that is where we're at today. And when I look at that, like we've already lost that, that, that patch of ours, we've already lost our, so now we're having to drive, like, right. We're having to drive, you know, and again, like I talked about how it is just to even access food. Well, now we're having to drive somewhere just to access our plants because ours have been wiped out by leafy spurge. And when we talk to more people, they're all like, well, my, the place where we go every year, that's gone. We're looking for a new place. Where are you guys picking? Now it's like everybody that has a picking place, they're not telling anybody, right? They want to protect it. They want to, you know, they don't want everybody, you know, cause you get one place, like we know of one area that's a main area that's, um, you know, it's not, you know, there's no home nearby. So a lot of people on a reserve access it. And then that's what I've been saying. So what happens when this one's wiped out, right? We we see how many people come here. So what, what happens when it's gone? So the direct relation to as far as food, but there's also the cultural aspect of our plants. Like with us uh, as Indigenous people, literally all of our lives are tied to the land. Um, we, you know, we look at... Um, like here I work at kind of wellness center. Uh, the first thing we want to do on the, when we're taking any of our people that are on that path to healing, um, whether it's from addictions or whether it's just from what they've gone through and experienced in their life, as far as, um, family violence or any of the negative impacts from colonization. The first thing we do to heal is we want to have them pray. We want to have them, um, smudge. And the first thing you do is you bring out the, the sweet grass, you bring out the sage, 
did you bring out the the plants for you know these healing ceremonies to do a smudge so to me there's a direct relation as far as our healing going forward with our plants how do you even have a sun dance without our plants it it would there you would not have our sun dance without our plants there's a direct relation with our culture to the land to the plants to the animals um when when they're going into you know, uh, ceremonies, sweat lodges, they're talking to the spirits of, uh, of the eagle, of the buffalo, of the bear. And that's my, again, I'm like, well, these are all, again, every animal could not live without the land, that their environment, that their home, you know, again, there's a direct relation there with the animals and the plants and the land, but it's also there for us as well. So to like, there is, you cannot separate, um, indigenous people from our lands like that that's a separation from our culture I, I remember hearing some of the stories where um when first the first colonizers got here they would kidnap um tribe members and they would bring them back to europe to show show their their uh, masters you know who the people were that were occupying these lands and it those kind of things i think about and i just can't even imagine the hurt from having to be torn away from your land like that. That is something I cannot even imagine. I don't even want to think about these poor Indians that 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 had that happen to them where they had to die in a place that was so unfamiliar to them. And that's the kind of thing that's how I look at how how important it is to us, you know, going forward. I can't think of um, our lands, our plants, our animals, and our culture surviving if these things aren't all together as one. And so to me, going forward as far as healing, and that's been a big part of our healing process, is being able to keep these um practices alive, you know, to be able to go out and pick every year, to harvest every year, to have these plants to share with others, to help them heal, to help them make them feel better. It even just feels better to just give somebody something that you picked and you you cared about and you, you know, now you're 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 gifting that to somebody to help them feel better. You know, that uh that's one of the things when you talk to a lot of indigenous people, um, like me, I'm an administrative assistant and one of the things that every kept telling me you're so smart you're so smart why don't you go back to school get an education you know just go all the way to the top you know you're you know I made it on the honor roll twice in my uh in my field and all of that and I and I just stopped and I said you know I'm I'm gonna the the one thing I wanted to do with my life is to help other people and when you talk to a lot of indigenous people that's the one thing that they all it's it's universal now like when I talk to a lot of the people that I work here with at wellness that's why they're here because they wanted to help our people they want to be able to help any way that they can and that's where you know why I'm an assistant I choose I could go forward with my education I could probably be a director I could probably be a manager and a supervisor but I like helping people this is my choice I'm smart enough to know I could get that education if I wanted and it's there but I'm very comfortable where I'm at I'm I'm happy helping people and and I get paid to do it I get paid to help people every day I get paid to help my staff here so that they can in turn help our community members on that path to healing. And so to me, that's why my job is important now. Um, 
because we are dealing with um, here we have pro the Indian residential school program. We're dealing with the murdered and missing Indigenous women. Uh, we just had the prevention of family violence. We're going to be looking at the uh, this is um, Native Addictions Awareness uh, Month. Um, so we're we're kind of dealing with some of the heaviest uh, topics as far as healing when when it comes to um, what our what our people have faced as far as colonization. So for us. You know, there is no separation from the land. Um, you know, there is no separation from the plants. As far as our culture, like they're, they're every part of our culture. They're in every part of everything. The more we get involved with our plants, the more we're realizing, oh, wow, that's what that design meant. This is what, you know, and I'm like, I can't believe like how ingrained all of this stuff is in our culture. And we've always known it was there, but just seeing and learning more more about it now it just blows me away like how how really really ingrained our plants our animals and everything are into our culture there you cannot separate one without you know losing something and so that that's why it's so important to us because you know we're we're always going to be i think on that path to healing i don't think we're ever going to come to a point and say yeah i'm over it i'm done i'm you know i'm good um I think it's always going to be a part of our lives and it's always going to be something that um, is going to be important to us. And that's why, you know, now that when we talk to um, do these presentations in front of our community members, they're all, they come to us and they're like, well, yeah, you know, you, you know, you're talking about this and these are things that we've never really thought about before. And so we're, you know, but the biggest thing for us is just to, you know, keep sharing that uh, information and just keep wanting people to want to know more. So, you know, that's why we're happy to have you come today and why we never turn down anybody that wants to, you know, hear more about this, because to me, it is important even for non-Indigenous people, because, again, you live here, right? You're you're in our territory, you're in our lands, and these plants exist off of the reserve. They're everywhere in this territory. When we go to Lethbridge, we recognize these plants, where when we go to certain parks, we see our plants there, and they're everywhere. And that's the thing, I think... I think everybody should be more familiarized with everything that is native to these lands because we should know more. And that's where we're at. We're, we, we've been saying it and now we're actually just trying to put that into, um, into, you know, action that, you know, it's always been here. We haven't always had the time or even had the knowledge or somebody to show us, but now we're just going to go try to find that way. We're going to find a way to figure out how to do this or figure out what those plants are. And so we go to books and so we go to our elders and we, you know, we try to find that knowledge anywhere, but we're, we're just so happy to, once we learn something to turn around and then share it with somebody else, because that's something that, you know, if it just stays in a book, you know, it's not, you know, books are good and everything. But I mean, if we don't actually take any of that stuff and put it into practice, then it's all for nothing. And so I always want to encourage people to just get involved any way you can. For me, I've always just wanted to deal with like, I was, I was telling my husband, I said, I should have gone into landscaping or something. That's where I wanted to be. But you know, this is where I ended up. And I'm I'm okay being here now. But I still have that interest. And so this is kind of how it's ended up coming out. <laughs> One way or another, we, 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 you know, we found a way to incorporate it into our lives and, and keep it going. And so that's kind of the importance of the whole thing, you know, as far as, um, you know, going forward for our people, and for even our Sundance, like everything, like all of this is just so 
um, it's so important to us. I can't, I can't think of, um, you know, healing without, without these things, you know, even, even a good meal too, like a traditional meal and all of that, like, you know, that to me is just like, and then to be there with your family and most of the things that we do, like when you're harvesting, you would be with your family. And so those are the times that, you know, I actually, I always say those are my favorite memories because when we were all together, it was something positive is usually a nice day. And then we were picking and we get to go home and then we get to make that into a meal and then be able to all share that together. That's a, that's a feeling that is just indescribable, but it is something that that's what kind of keeps me going. And that's kind of the, um, those kind of memories that like, I still want to have more. I want, I want other people to experience this because one of the things that kind of makes me feel bad is when, you know, people tell me like, well, I don't know where, where to pick. I've never picked before. And I'm like, wow, you know, so that's where a lot of this, like, I think I, I kind of took for granted when I was younger, because I just figured everybody knew these things. I figured everybody did this, but it wasn't the case. And so that's where we're just really trying to, you know, get more people involved in it, more people to practice it, more people to do it. Because, I think the more you understand, the more you know, the more you're going to care about it. If you don't know it, you if it's foreign to you, then why would you care about that? Why would you care about this thing? You don't know anything about it. And so it's easy to ignore something you don't know. So that to me is important to um, non-Indigenous people to have this information as well, because the more you understand it, the more you can identify it or you can see what the benefits that it has and and it's something then you'll, you know, well, why would you want to see this gone? You know, and so that that's the basic thing, I think, is the for me, I'm always telling everybody, take your kids picking, take them out. You know, I love that message to get kids out into nature because they're the ones that are going to be when we're long gone, it's going to be them here. And if they don't know this, if they don't know our no nature, if they're not familiar with it, then why would they care about it? So that's kind of what our, our biggest message is, is like, just get out there, <laughs> be out there. And, and to me, I think that is so healing as well to be, cause I mean, you can sit in an office, but it's a totally different aspect. If you go down the hill, like we always go to Red Crow Park, which is close here and we go walking with the trees. So that is just a totally different feeling. And I always feel restored just being in an, in an area like that, as opposed to sitting in an office. And even one day we were talking about, like I, I have a really, I have a lot of problems with my feet and the lady came one day and I told her, um, I said, do you ever think about how, like, when was the last time you touched the land? I told her, you know, you get up in the morning, you put on your shoes, you're walking on a flat, hard surface. You get in your, you got your shoes on, you get in your vehicle, you drive to work, you're on pavement, you come in the building, you're in here all day. Again, you go home. So when do you actually touch the land? I told her, I mean, that's one of the things I told her. And, you know, I, I feel like I have so many problems with my feet because this is not what we were into. Again, we haven't changed as far as Indigenous people to modify our lives to now be walking on a flat, hard surface. Um, you know, so before we walked on the land, which was soft and giving and had grass and had, you know, so you weren't walking on a hard, hard surface all the time. And so like I was telling her, you know, you have to kind of want, like I, I told her, I think about these things sometimes because I wonder how much of it really, really affects us. How much do you touch plastic every day? And we don't even touch natural things. We don't even touch the ground or leaves or plants or trees. We're touching plastic like all day on your computer 
computer, on your phone, um, on a table, on a chair. On, I mean, literally, we're bombarded by this. And then we wonder why we get cancer. <laughs> you know, I told you, I mean, when you really, really think about how disconnected we are, and it's right outside our window. And that and yet that's how disconnected our lives are, because it's work, it's, you know, pay for this, it's go, you know, get the job done. It's, you know, get home, get the meal on, you know, get everybody taken care of, get them to bed, you know, and then start it all over again. But that's where I think if you just, we got to just stop sometimes and say, you know what, you know, maybe we're feeling like this because we're just going and going and going. We're not taking that time to actually get out there and, and see what has always been there and what has, what um, mother nature has always provided for us. To me, again, that is a part of that healing. And again, that's part of what has sustained me up to this point, having gone through residential school, having gone through family violence, having gone through all of the um, negative impacts from just living on a reserve and even dealing with racism when you leave the reserve and how all of that impacts us as Indigenous people. So there's so many different aspects, like with as far as nature, as far as our culture, as far as everything, it's all, it's here. It's it's here for us. And we just have to get out there and start caring about it and start protecting it and start, you know, these plants have always been here to help us. And that's my message now. It's our turn to help them. There's that one question you had about uh, like uh, being a, the plants guy. Yeah, that, yeah, that was my impression at least. Well, yeah. well, what happened was uh, back in 2001, I was at the University of Lethbridge. Okay. I was actually moving into the Faculty of Management. And uh, I took a, a class uh, with um, Stan Knowlton. He taught uh, Blackfoot syllabics. And a lot of that learning is all land-based. So going through that whole class and realizing that you know what happened was he opened the door to like our like our Blackfoot worldview. Mm. So that class that summer, re- I realized that I didn't want to become a manager. You know, I, I didn't want to be be you know, sitting behind a desk. And what what opened my mind was all of that. I wanted to learn more about like our our way, our Blackfoot worldview. So. Like a lot of us, were, we have a lot of Western knowledge. And a lot of times we, we follow that Western knowledge. And for us, it doesn't really bring us anywhere good, I can say. Well, we can live among, you know, we live in this world, we're colonized. But this is not our way. And we, we tr- we're trying to live, you know, Blackfoot. We're trying to live that way with this Western knowledge. So I, I talked to Lori at that time. I told her, I think I'm just going to leave, you know, because, well, one thing, another thing, too, is my funding was running out. But at the same time, too, is I didn't want to have that job because I know a lot of managers, coordinators, they're not very well like people. And what can you really do other than boss people around? You can make things happen, but you don't really end up doing what you want to do. You don't really do what's really important, like for the people, really important for the people. So you, you basically just work on top of a lot. So that's what I realized is that we need more of our Blackfoot worldview, more of that uh, traditional ecological knowledge. And that's how uh, all of this work that we're doing, this, it's how we operate. So all of this stuff we're doing is all based on our Blackfoot uh, worldview and our, our knowledge. 
we're not really using any parts of the Western Western thought. So everything that we're approaching is all based on Blackfoot worldview. Because at this point, with the with all the knowledge that we've we've gotten working with our plants, a whole like we ha- like Lori was talking about that. In order to know the plants, like you have to know, you have to know them. You have to know their stories because all of them have a story. And how can how can you work with them without knowing them? You know, no, knowing that. And the thing too is that you know, for me, they're they're a nation. Like a, 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 we have a sister we work with. Her name is Debbie. And she, her presentation, and she mentions them as a, a nation because it is true. Before we were created, before the first Blackfoot people were created, uh, the first things that were created on the land were plants. Green grass was one of the first, and um, sweet grass. And after that, he created the, the creator created plants, a variety of plants. So that's what, so they're older than us. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I look outside, and whenever time we walk uh, anywhere or like anywhere we go around here, we're always picking. We'll pick some plant or we'll pick seeds. It's just gotten to that point where we... But the thing about that is is that we want our people to care about it. Because mm. we have a lot of people that really rely on these plants. And as long as much as the, the buffalo like, is our identity, these plants basically are the root of that. A lot of tribes are losing a lot of their plants. So they're adopting, adapting different methods. And we can't do that. We have to maintain this. So in order for us to not go to, down to that road, the work we're doing is really important. And I didn't realize how important it was. When you work with, when you work with uh, the environment, especially with nature, you're really at a lot of different odds. You don't know what's hitting you. But what the biggest thing that we're, we're dealing with is, was climate change. Yeah. Our seasons are getting shorter. Like it's just you can't we you can't really plan like you used to before. But now, like you got to plan for the snow. Snow is gonna come. You got to do all of this before that comes. So a lot of the times you're not actually fulfilling your job until the snow comes and you can't fin- finish it because all the seeds or whatever is all knocked down. So these are a lot of things that we're looking at because a lot of things our elders questioned was I had to talk to them. Uh, about climate change so i had to explain to them about climate change and why all of these plants are in this state because it's one thing to be telling elders this is what's saying but they want to know well what's the reason so one of the so how i explained to them is that you know while we're we're all colonized we all we're all kind of doing it you know we drive cars everything clothing everything takes something from the environment mm-hmm. clothing takes a huge amount of water mm-hmm. so there's a lot of these things that you have to realize so when you start really thinking about a lot about this work you start really changing your mindset so with us we don't really use packaged foods we use our medicines or all our traditional plants we we teach others how to use them because that's what i mentioned earlier is we require knowledge we want people to care about them because the thing about plants is it's going to be sad if we lose them you know, and the thing too is that it's, it's, you know, like with here, like we've grown up with it. It'll be really sad with well, our, our future you know, generations not to have anything. And that's why the work is what we're doing is really important. I didn't think of, of it at that time, but at today looking at it and seeing how all of the, how the world is in the state, you know, of uh, food shortages, you know, food security is a big issue. Food sovereignty is what we used to have. So that's something we're also trying to regain. 
So with all of this work, there's a lot of things, a lot of people involved, a lot of different aspects of it, health, then there's wellness, there's the spiritual part, there's even the economic part of it. So there's a lot of things that we need to consider. So right now with what we're doing, the chief and council of here, they're aware of what we're doing. So we're looking at them to give us a little bit more backing mm -hmm. for this project. Uh, the Rockies Institute and the Blood Trial Land Management, they've uh, gone together and um, we're working with them on this restoration plan. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. We're, we're thinking maybe about five to ten years okay. uh, for this project to go. So a lot of this is all new. So one of the, one of, uh, when I... When I start teaching at the school, I was telling, uh, telling Lori, like I'm learning a lot more yeah. <laughs> going there. It was giving me more of a focus, but I didn't follow anything, the Western methodology. So we have to find our own. We have to find our own. So once I kind of figured that out, once I kind of figured that how, how to approach our, our teaching, it, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier that way. But the thing about it is, is that it takes a lot of, um, work our 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 lessons they're basically all stories so if, if if something happened to you maybe you got hurt your mother will help heal that wound with a plant they'll show you how to do that plant but while they're doing that plant they'll tell you a story about that plant or something similar so you're always told a story so everything and then that that's what you pass on so a lot of the knowledge starts really young, like at about five years old, because what happened here on the reserve and here on Blackfoot Territory, almost every Indian First Nations community is barriers were set up. Yeah. So a lot of the barriers that were set up, a lot of people were still using them. Or they'd be telling us, so you can't do that. You can't do this. Who told you? You got to get permission. And that's how we, we never live like that. As neat to be skates to be black food. We never lived like that. We never lived by, you know, someone telling us you can't do this. We all knew what we had to do. We all knew everything. And that's what well, we... even our um, months, right? Mm -hmm. The um what is August? It's how do you say it again? Uh, I just forget. But, but yeah. the just yeah. it means what? Uh, it means fall is coming. Eh? Oh, the berries are ripening. That's what I mean. Really? Yeah. Oh, so see, and that where when I look at when I think about that at times because I I look at like I know and I'm like I forget which month it is, but I know you know the month, you know it's when the berries are ready, and I'm like that. I wonder if that'll change now, like with climate change, because the berries were they were really off this last year, right? They were like weeks behind where they should have been ready within that month where we call that month, you know, this is when the berries are ready. You know, they, they were still taking longer. And so that's a part of um, how climate change is actually really affecting our plants now. So the same way colonization affected literally every part of our aspect, including our plants, our animals, like climate change is doing the same thing. There is nothing, you know, under the sun that is untouched now from climate change. And so that's going to be the biggest thing going forward is learning how to deal with it. But that's why we're kind of looking at having the greenhouses to have more of a temperate um, you know, to be able to control the temper temperature for some of these plants to help the ones and the the focus um, right off the bat are the ones that are struggling the most, which would be the the wild turnip is one of the ones that we're going to start with, and then some of the other ones that are just the main plants, like with the sweet grass and the mint, um, they're all you know very common plants. They're very they're the ones that people are the most familiar with, and so those are kind of the ones that we want to start with, just so people are because they're already familiar with them. But we really 
looking at um, getting some of those ones that are struggling with climate change now and really looking at um, identifying those ones. So that's kind of our next steps here. But just going forward, like we're, you know, there's so many um, important aspects to all of this that we're really, you know, looking at and then, you know, just still learning more about all of this too. And so if we, you know, find out that there's going to be something coming up, like we'll try to get involved and, you know, try to find out any way we can to, you know, keep this thing going. So for us, it's, it's pretty much going to be our, probably our life's work now, you know, what we started here and, you know, seeing the importance that other people are placing on it as well. And I think climate change is kind of forcing that to happen just, you know, naturally anyways, because, you know, we had started, you know, all of this started. And I think sometimes it's so crazy that, you know, I just remember having that one conversation with William that one day when I was looking out our front window and I'm like, you know what, why can't we move those sweetgrass plants over here? You know, if we can move them over here, we could weed them, we could take care of them, we can do, do that here, but they're way over there and we can't, you know, and, and the leafy spurge is taking over. It's not so bad here. And just that is what kind of where all of this has come from now. <laughs> like just yeah. that initial. Yeah. So um, going back to that question about the plants, guys. So that's where it started. So uh, my dad was a pipe holder. So I had a lot of knowledge of plants and like the protocol uses. Oh, okay. And he showed me like how to make medicine. Oh, oh. But one of the... Um, well, through all of that, so when we started working, when I joined kind of, well, KIPA, um, that's how we kind of got our voice heard. We, we basically got to join some groups. So we became members of o, OWC as well. Mm. So through that, that's how things started going. But along the way, with the knowledge of the plants, there's really not very many people. Like uh, a lot of the people you'll know are older people. And if there is some that know about plants, they only have a specific knowledge of the small range of plants, not the range that we know. So, yeah, so that's what basically happened. And at some point where, um, uh, I don't know, we always say, you know, we, we have this saying, like, if some, if, you know, you, like, you have to do it yourself. If you, if you want it done, you got to do it yourself. So a lot of the work that we've done with the plant work, we, we didn't get paid. Like, we didn't ask for money. We did it all on our own. And because for us, you know, not only was it our work, but we saw it as the community. It's our future's work. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this is for them. You know, we do get paid, which is good. But a lot of it is it, a lot of our, you know. It's usually just to compensate yeah. expenses. Just yeah. again, where we live, um, you know, take takes me about a half an hour just to get here, you know, to work. And then where we where we live, you know, we have a lot of we, we get drifted in a lot, snowed in a lot. So, um, you know, we're pretty used to living in a rural area. But um, and and the challenges that go along with that. So, you know, if, if anything, if we get paid anything, it's usually just compensation. And even with the, when I was on the old man watershed council, I think that's all they compensated me for was just travel. Mm -hmm. And then that was it. Like pretty much just you're volunteering your time, you know. And but, so, but the thing. Of about that you know these you we always learn mm -hmm. there's always things you learn mm -hmm. you know like if you didn't go you'll never learn yeah like that's like with us if we never did it 
did anything well, even getting out there and doing these presentations, yeah. like when somebody else does a presentation, like, oh, well, <laughs> like we learned something there. Well, like, the thing, too, is we cover a, a wide range, everything from plants to colonialism to uh, our rights, residential school, um, our diet. So we like art, you know, cultural appropriation. So we have all of these different areas. And that's the thing that we've uh, we don't. We that's why we're this. We we learn. That's when I we, think kind of some of what what um, what he's even talking about with this is that we we actually we started out as activists mm-hmm. just with the idle no more movement, yeah. and then when yeah. the when the fracking issue started up here in 2010, um, it was just it was uh, it was just thrown at us. Mm-hmm. You know, we had um, the first meeting was held on October 20th in 2010, and the first agreement to have the fracking start here on the reserve was signed on October 25th was five days later. So there was literally not and two of those days were the weekend. So there was literally nothing any, uh, any, any member here on the tribe could do, um, but protest, right? So we, we, we started um, getting involved that way. And I just started, uh, I even started a Facebook page, just giving out information because our, it was all very clandestine. It was very secretive. It was very, nobody's going to know about this and yet they'd been meeting about it for almost a year so they could have told us about a year ago but then they they waited to spring it on us and when we had no choice and so now we have fracking here um and so you know that's kind of how we got going and then with the whole idle no more movement and so that's kind of where all of this kind of grew from we were already um being involved and already getting active as far as um what we're dealing as uh, dealing with as far as the legislation coming down from the federal government government, self-governance and all of this like scary terminology and everything. So we got involved in that way. But to me, it's a direct relation again to our plants and our animals and everything that we're doing there because where we see the direct relation to everything again, when he talked about, you know, food sovereignty and and, and even as our own sovereignty as a nation, because we still see ourselves as a nation. We are very much our own um, nation. We have our own language. We have our own culture. We have our own way here um, with our Nisitibi, you know, the whole confederacy here, but even outside that beyond, you know, all the other indigenous communities as well. So um, that to me, just going forward is like, I just, you know, I just want everybody to know these things and so that they'll care about them. And that's the only way I think it happens is if you understand something, you'll care about it. If you don't, you know, why would you? And, so. that, and that's, the thing, you know, it, a lot of, um, especially students, they're, they're aware, uh, aware of what we're doing. And they're more engaged once you start showing them like uh, plants that are up there. Mm-hmm. So that's who we're targeting. And then we're, you know, we're reaching them. Like with the kind of high school with the greenhouse there, the students want to start a market garden. That's great. You know, and that's no one's doing that on the reserve. So, when, like, we're going to be helping them. I, I asked them, if you guys want to do that, well, we'll be behind you. Great. You know, so there's a lot of things that that's what we want to see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just because, you know, we want our knowledge for others to learn. Mm-hmm. So, if you're ever around us, that's all you'll learn. Looking back in retrospect, I I feel kind of bad that I walked into that interview with the purpose of getting something in order to do something. Like I said at the beginning, I, I was hoping to learn more about native plants in order to inspire people to incorporate more native plants 
on their farms and ranches. Re-listening to the audios left me with this interesting notion that maybe even my interview practices need decolonizing. And you know what? Why not? Walking into a room and listening to and absorbing a story like the one we just heard without trying to steer the conversation with my questions, without trying to anticipate what the next question should be, just listening to it sounds like a really pleasant experience to me. One last story. William gave me this story before I left the Kainai Wellness Center that day, and he said it's okay if I read it for this podcast episode, so big thank you to William. The story in English, I was trying to pronounce it in Blackfoot, but it just I was just butchering it so badly. But in English, it's called The Blackfoot Way of Life, and it talks about the creation of the buffalo or the ini. Long ago, the search for food was the main reason the ancestors broke into smaller groups. In these early days, our only food was berries, roots, or leaves of various edible plants, and occasionally barks of certain shrubs and trees. These foods were our main diet for many years. There was a time when the ancestors ran out of food. Most of the plants available to us were in short supply. This was due to the children of the mud man and rib woman becoming so many. They had moved to the four directions and needed more food. This was when they began to get thin. The creator saw this and knew what he had to do. The creator came down from the heavens and went to Bun Man, and they both went for a walk and soon came upon a small creek. They both sat down and the creator took some mud and molded a thing with four legs on it. Creator was very skilled and made nostrils out of the thing and blew into them and said, Now breathe the air for me and live with it like my children who are now living with it. Eat the grass and the foliage to fatten you up, and those who are in the same likeness as you will grow to be plenty and roam this land. From this you will become food for my children. In order for the animals to become many, Creator made a mate in the same image of the first four-legged animal. This one will be for the seed you will plant in her, and by this first one you will become many. He then told Mudman, You and your family and all the other children will use them for food. This was when we were given the gift of meat from the Creator, the gift of the buffalo. When the buffalo became many, the Creator then instructed in the preparations and the uses of the buffalo. Everything was used and nothing was wasted. It served as our shelter, clothing, tools, and everything else that was needed for our everyday living. That is why we always give thanks to the Creator for all the wonderful and beautiful things He has given us. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. 
Rural Roots is a project of the Stetler Learning Center in East Central Alberta, and we run workshops, farm field days, webinars, we have a farmer's blog, and of course, we have this podcast. And don't forget about the Solar Lab, which is all about empowering communities with community-owned renewable energy. If you want to find out more about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots team is a little smaller right now, but it's just as mighty. It's made up of Marie Galanka up in Athabasca and myself, Derek Leahy. Uh, We thank Angie O'Connor and Evelyn Tanaka for helping us out this past year. We're also really grateful for support from the advisory committee, which is Kimberly Cornish, Aaron Wilkie, Dana Penrice, and Mark Fox. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media edited this episode. Most of this episode was recorded at the Kainai Wellness Centre on Treaty 7 lands. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. I hope calving is either going well or went well and good luck with seeding in the next few weeks. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.